0: Santiago de Chile. I'm Adam Teter.
1: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal.
0: And welcome to the Vine Fair podcast. And yep, that's right, Zach. I'm uh, I'm actually 12 hours, 13 hours south by airplane of uh, New York City in Santiago this week, which has been a really ridiculous experience, which we'll talk about a little bit, but uh, not often. I mean, I guess since the last Italy episode that, uh, that we have podcast where I'm in some ridiculous location.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. Everyone's going to think that all I do is Stay at home, or I guess go visit you in New York occasionally. Uh, maybe we will try one on one of my travels one of these times. So I have to ask you because because we we've sort of vaguely talked about this uh, in other podcasts, but I'm curious. So when you're traveling, when you've got a trip like this, right, and you're going, you know, multiple flights, you're traveling to another, you know, destination, as you said, twelve, thirteen hours south. Are do you like what were you drinking? Were you were you like you know getting getting your drink on at the hotel or sorry at the airport bar beforehand, or were you uh, so it sober? Oh, I'm so
0: glad you asked. So I did like probably the coolest thing I think everyone should do if you are going to be flying out of JFK anytime soon and I went to the new TWA lounge. Oh cool. Um or TWA, I guess what, hangar hotel whatever they're calling it, mm-hmm. which is super cool. So basically uh, it's the old TWA terminal that's basically sat dormant um at JFK for I don't know the last 50 years, 40 20 years, 30 40 years, who knows. I don't remember. Um and basically uh you know an investor came in i think like 5 years ago or so and bought the property and spent you know that time renovating it and turning it into a boutique hotel and it's basically like if you love the 1950s and mid-century modern architecture and design It's your wet dream. Like it's a very cool, very Instagrammable place with these really great bars. Jean-Georges has opened a restaurant there. Um, There's a – they brought in an old TWA plane that they turned into a bar. That could use work I think because just at night when you're trying to go to the bar – uh, after eight, they're they say it's a speakeasy, but like when you get to the plane and you give your name and you get on the plane and there's lots of screaming kids running up and down the aisle of the plane, you're like, this is just as bad as if I was drinking on a regular plane. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, like it's a very cool experience. And so that's what I did before flying down here, which was, which was really neat. And I encourage everyone to do it. Like, look, it's, it's still at the airport. So there's going to be some hurried, uh, You know, sort of attitudes because you do have people who are like us or like probably what you will do if you go trying to you know have a quick meal there to see it have a a good drink um a nice cocktail whatever before you then run to another terminal and catch your flight Mm -hmm. but it's uh it's a very cool experience
1: that's awesome yeah makes makes probably having a a layover there also pretty nice although obviously if you're flying if that's if you're flying if you're leaving from new york you know i don't know how how early you want to get to the airport just to have a drink but it definitely makes it a little more uh a little more pleasant. That's cool, and uh, yeah, super they, cool. Did you have anything in particular drink wise that was like, what did you have? Was there something particularly good? A martini. Oh, well, there you go.
0: Yeah, I had a martini. Uh, I
1: felt like that was like the thing I had to have. Um, it fits the, the the motif very well. And for for Tim McCurdy, at least who's listening, olives or a twist.
0: Uh, oh, a twist. Uh, it was olives. Olives.
1: Ah, gotcha. Fair enough. Uh, and he got mad at me about it. Actually, Yeah. <laughs>
0: He he yelled. Yeah, um, I got right. I got a message. Yeah, I got a message on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. That was like, uh, why does this image have a olive in the martini instead of a twist? I'm like, dude, that's how they brought the martini. Uh, I, I, I ordered their classic martini. That's what I got. Lay off me.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. So let's talk about where you are now, because as exciting as the, the TWA terminal at JFK is, uh, Chile is probably a little more exotic for all of our listeners. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Um so yeah, so I am right now in Santiago and I am here basically visiting a bunch of producers um and trying to check out everything that Chile has to offer. Um it's been a really really eye-opening experience, but I'm curious that before before we really jump into Chile, what do you know about Chile?
1: <laughs> it's a good question. Um I think, you know, for me one of those things I was thinking about this um when we were discussing this topic, uh, you know, before the show, and I was thinking, you know, for me, Chile is one of these countries, and I would put, sadly, a lot of the wine-producing countries in the Southern Hemisphere kind of in this general bucket where, for whatever reason, uh, there's not a lot of representation of those wines, at least here in the Seattle market, Um, and that would be not just Chile, but Argentina and South Africa and Australia and, to some extent, New Zealand, and as a result, you know, kind of what I'm familiar with from a wine perspective is, you know, the things that are produced in re- in relatively large quantities and are imported here in, you know, again, in large quantities and are generally at a, you know, relatively affordable price point. And I've heard from a lot of people and I'm sure I will hear this from you too, people who visit Chile in particular, who rave about the quality of the wine and how how, you know, really there's amazing wine there. And I 100% believe it I just it's without going there it's at this point in my life at least been very hard to get much exposure to it so you know you find some interesting and and sort of relatively affordable Carmenere and and um Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, you know I think probably I've actually had a really interesting like Chilean I think it was Sauvignon Ver, like uh, Sauvignon Blanc um basic um mutation I guess but you know that's like it basically and all that stuff has been sort of you know in the 15-ish dollar a bottle range. I haven't really had anything, I don't think, that that sort of goes beyond that. So, so I don't know, was that a reasonable summation of the standard uh, understanding of Chile from, you know, the wine profession?
0: Yeah, I think that that basically uh, sort of, you, you basically nailed what most people know about Chile in the United yeah. States, which is not a whole lot. Yeah. And, uh, I think that that's, you know, a real opportunity for this country as I've, as I've been traveling around. So I was here both to, um, you know, do a bunch of visits of which I still have, uh, about, I think, six days left of them, um, and also to speak to their annual Wine Summit, which is like a really cool conference that they do for basically 90% of the producers in the country um, and sort of talk about what's happening in the American market and, um, you know, talk about media and what we're, what we're up to and things like that, which is a really cool opportunity that I'm really um, thankful they invited me down here to do. Um, but I think like the, the thing that the easiest way I can distill Chile to most Americans is it 100% is California in South America, hmm. like 100%. But the actual opportunity to ski and surf in one day doesn't take five hours. Like, you know, Californians like to say, like, "Ha, oh, you can ski and surf in the same day in California. Thanks, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, <laughs> instead, you actually can do it in an hour wow. because the country is super, super narrow. Yeah. So it's really long, really narrow. And what that allows for is this... Really amazing diversity of climates, topography, et cetera, that very strongly impacts these wines. And I think makes it one of the most exciting places to make wine right now in in the world, um, just because of the quality of the fruit that the the country can deliver. So it's from top to bottom, it's a Mediterranean climate, right? So. um, it's really easy, almost too easy to grow grapes here. The only uh, caveat in some regions, which is, you know, depending on where you land on water, water usage is that they have to irrigate. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's just certain regions in which like there would be, you know, not enough rainfall. And I was talking to some producers who say, oh, yeah, we get, you know, wine professionals here who say, oh, why don't you dry farm? And, you know, their answer always is, well, because we we honestly just can't, you know, there's the 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 way the soils are, you just the water goes straight through them, and there's no way that you could ever actually not irrigate. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides that, like, there's not a whole lot that's you know crazy here. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to organically farm because it's dry, so you're not battling lots of funguses. Um, it's pretty easy to biodynamically farm. So there's a lot of people doing both. There's, I mean, I think. I was told a statistic, yesterday, like 90% of the producers here are at least sustainable, which is insane. Cool. Um, You know, it's a a massive amount of people, you know, producing really high quality fruit and therefore really good wine. And the wines across the board are are, are pretty impressive. And I think the other thing that has really struck me is sort of what you had said uh, about that $15 price point, that value here Mm -hmm. um, that I think is just like really – pretty amazing like even you so it's funny like, you know every region they have their own word for their high-end wine mm-hmm. right so like what do you think they call like the top tier of wines at the wineries here in chile i'm just curious
1: i mean not to make a wild guess based on say linguistic connection but reserva it's a good guess
0: they call it their icons okay. so it's really funny so big like, this is the icon and when i first like i was like the icon of what <laughs> and then I had to realize that that's the term across the board in this country of which every winery refers to. like this is our pre this is our super super premium. And even these wines at most wineries when I'll be like, okay, cool. So like what's that cost on the American market? They'll be like $35, $40. And I'm like, holy crap. Just like the amount of value there is really insane. You know, what I mean, and look, there are some producers, probably people who listen to podcast who may have encountered some of these producers who have have done even more expensive bottles on the U.S. market will say, like, that's not true for all icons. And that's 100% accurate, right? There are definitely producers still in Chile that have have been able to create $85 to $100 wines and sell them on the U.S. market. But that's 100% not the norm. Um, The norm is people making really high quality wines in this You know, price range that really at above 15 or 20 bucks is pretty excellent. And I've seen doesn't really get much higher than 45 or 50 bucks. Um, So there's just like amazing value here and and really cool quality. And there's a a lot of awesome, you know, diversity. But the the coolest thing here is like I think the primary – Um, grape that the country is is pushing to become known for. And, and, you know, having tasted a bunch probably should become known for, I I think should become known for is Cabernet Sauvignon. Like 100%. Like they, there's, I think, 50% of all vines in Chile are planted Cabernet. And you see like this really cool uh, range of styles in terms of what people are producing. So you have people making Cabernet in a very much like old world style. So, you know, really high acidity, much more like structured with, you know, very, very strong tannins and long age ability. And then you have people who are also making it much more and we could call it a Napa or New World style. Right. So yeah. power extraction, um, you know, oak. And then you have people who are making it in almost like a very fruit forward, lean, you know, just very casual everyday drinking style and all of these styles show what this grape can do here. And then of course like there's tons of other really cool shit. Um, But, but I think that that's what's, what's really exciting about the country and all these like really quality Cabernets that are crazy ageable. You're finding for like 25 bucks.
1: Cool. So I'm wondering, cause it's, it seems to me one thing I've also heard about Chile that I'm, you know, you maybe had have had a chance to see more directly is that there's a lot of really old, vine material like that there's not uh phylloxera in the country or at least um if there is there's very little and so there's a lot of really old plantings and while obviously that may not go into you know a lot of wine it may not go into the sort of most affordable stuff um you know that's always for me as a you know as a dork the some of the stuff that i find really fascinating is when you hear when you see people making wine from vines that have been there for you know 7500 125 years or whatever the case may be have you gotten a chance to see some of that
0: Uh, totally. But so he, so here's what's crazy. First of all, you're not a
1: dork. Second of all, it still goes into the affordable wine, Oh, really?
0: but yeah, because they just have it. So what's really crazy is, um, so for example, you have to think about Chile as almost like an Island unto itself, even in South America, because it's bordered by four natural barriers, right? So at the North of the country, you have the Atacama desert, which is the driest desert in the world. So, like, NASA has an observatory there. Uh, you know, most most countries, the EU, has an observatory there. Cause it's, because it's the driest desert in the world, it's also the, uh, the clearest skies in the world. Hmm. Right? So we can really see the, uh, you know, the stars. So everyone has observatories up there. And that's a natural barrier, right? So you're not going to get pests and things crossing that desert. I mean, there's stories of even, like... Uh, when people were crossing in from Peru there was someone who was coming to settle Chile at a time and like they they started with 300 people and ended with i think 17 wow. right it's that that super dry a desert and then on the country's you know eastern border you have the andes mountains right so on the other side is argentina but like again we've all heard of These stories of people trying to cross those mountains, they're extremely dangerous. They're very tall. If anyone's seen the movie Alive, (laughs) like you know of, of, uh, of, of how treacherous those mountains can be, and that's another natural barrier. In the south, you have the glaciers, and on the west, you have the Pacific Ocean. So the country actually doesn't get a lot of the pests and issues that other people have had to deal with. Especially when those those things have been, you know, maybe accidentally brought over from, you know, someone coming into Argentina, etc. So the country, you know, the country doesn't have Zika. It's 100% Zika free and never has had Zika because they just do not mosquitoes, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. um, and they never had Phylloxera. And so actually what's really crazy is I've never experienced this before until coming to this country. When you land in Chile, every single one of your bags is x-rayed. Wow. Because they're looking for plant material, fruit, et cetera, that you could be bringing in, and bringing one of those unwanted pests into the country. Because they realize these natural borders that they have that are, that make the the farming here so special. Like, so just a uh, you know, side note: I've had the best avocados I've ever had in my life while I've been I've been here because um, they grow a lot of them, way better than California. Sorry, California. Um, they have them year round, which is crazy, and so they're really protective of you know the entire environment here because they they realize that's what makes it special so because of that a lot of these vines are ungrafted which you know for those of people that don't really know what that means uh you know as Zach, you you probably explain it better, but uh, right, it's when we basically take American rootstock because American rootstock is uh, resistant to phylloxera to the mite, and we then graft European vines. We we take we make a cut, right? How do we do it again? It's like a it's a V cut, yeah. And we basically, then graft vines on top of them.
1: Yeah. So your 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 standard grapevine almost anywhere in the world is sort of a Frankenstein monster kind of thing, wherein yeah, the rootstock is either based on a uh, American or a hybrid rootstock that's it that's been that is either naturally or has been um, in some way sort of um, bred to be resistant to phylloxera and and have occasionally other properties that are beneficial and then yeah your Chardonnay or your Cabernet Sauvignon or your Pinot Noir or whatever is grafted on and the the thing that's kind of that can be nice for producers about that on the one well besides the phylloxera resistance is if you decide uh, you know I don't actually I planted these vines but I actually think I want to grow you know, Merlot here instead of Syrah, I can graft over a little easier than you can on, on own rootstock. But the thing about uh, the growing up plant from essentially, well, not exactly seed, but more or less, and having it be one continuous thing is for one, it is less, resi- it's more resistant to other diseases because you haven't made it that big kind of cut in the trunk of the vine um, that can cause problems with uh, the vine as it ages, with there can be infections and things like that. And the other thing is we don't really know because there aren't enough examples of it. You know, Chile is one example. There's a few other places in the world um, that have a lot of own rooted vines. But we don't really know if it makes better wine or not. But there's there's people who believe it does. I think the science is kind of unsettled in part because there's just not a good way to do sort of controlled testing. But there's a certain logic to the idea that, you know, you might get a more true expression of a variety if it's not just the the sort of the canes and the, the canopy that's growing from that, but the roots as well.
0: Well, so that's that was, what was really interesting. So, uh, I was at Garcia Silva, one of the um, one of the wineries we visited, and ninety two percent of all of their vines are natural, you know, ungrafted or roots. So, you know, it's literally just from root to vine is the same plant. All European, which is really cool. And the winemaker, he's this really cool dude named Diego, a young guy our age, and he was saying, you know, that the the viticulturalists that have worked in the vineyard forever have said to him, you know, well, think about it like, um, someone cutting off your leg and giving you a new leg, right? Like you'll probably will still walk, but will you walk as well as you would if you had your own leg? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. And that's sort of like the the perspective they take. And there's lots of people in the country you see who, uh, you know, Are not only planting what they call own rooted vines, but which are, you know, also discovering these old vines that have been here forever that, you know, have never, ever, ever been grafted. So, for example, like last night at dinner um, from the winemaker Di Martino, which makes incredible wines, uh, we had a 200-year-old vine Pais wine, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right, which is just crazy. I mean, like so – chile thinks they have the oldest vines in the world and they think they have the oldest vines in the world because of this because just the the country has been so protected for so long that they've never had the issues that other you know unfortunately europe and then the us et cetera have had to deal with in terms of the you know the mites and things that have, that have gone after these vines mm-hmm. um so that makes it really cool so you can make some really cool old vine cabernet um you know and then also a lot of these wines are just like Crazy ageable, like Pais, not so much. Pais basically makes it's the Mission grape, right? So it basically makes a really juicy uh, red grape that you see people trying to play with and and treat like almost like a Beaujolais style. Mm -hmm. Um, But like most people are like making, you know, some of those fun wines, and then really serious Cabernets and some Pinot Noirs and Sauvignon Blancs and Chardonnays and stuff like that. Carmenere, actually, I haven't seen as much as I thought I would.
1: Interesting. I mean, is it, I always wonder with that because you know it's sort of like from a from the like Somme side of things. It's like the because it's a distinctive thing. It's a thing that really was is only really grown in Chile at this point. I mean, there's a little bit of it planted back in France, but but despite being a French variety originally, it's you know basically only grown in Chile. So we kind of gravitate towards like Chile ch- towards Chilean Carmenere because it's a thing unto itself in the same way that like we taste Pinotage from South Africa, even though no one really likes it because like it's weird and only really grown there and so but it ma- it makes sense to me to some extent that like I- i've had some carbonaires that are good but but i would agree that i'm not sure it's what i want to like it's not what i would want to dominate my wine industry were i planning a wine industry
0: and your list yeah and i think and i honestly think that that's like i've had a lot of conversations with producers about that this week which is a sort of tangent that we can get into uh, i'd love to do another episode on this and maybe bring in some more perspectives but that It's unfair, actually, to do this to regions by wine professionals to say, oh, well, I only want to drink the random stuff I can't get elsewhere. So I'm going to put you in this box. It's actually really simplistic to do that to regions to say, oh, well, I can't get Carmenere anywhere else and you should be known for this. And so, therefore, I don't want to try your amazing Cabernet Sauvignon or your amazing Pinot Noir. That might might, might blow my mind. It might be better than Cabernet Sauvignon I've had from literally anywhere else. But – because you have this weird history, where I don't know if people know the history of Carmenère, but it's kind of crazy here. They thought forever it was Merlot. Um, basically someone brought it over from France and they started planting it and they just started referring to it as late ripening Merlot, which, uh, Emily, the winemaker at Carmen was telling me over dinner is kind of hilarious, because like everyone <laughs> in the industry knows that Merlot doesn't ripen late. It ripens early. So the fact that like these Chilean winemakers all were like, yeah, we, we just have the late ripening stuff is really funny until like, I think the eighties When, um, you know, at Carmen actually is where they discovered, uh, they discovered that it was Carmenere. Um, they had like a geeky new, uh, winemaker who basically like noticed, uh, like a pattern in the flowers of the plant. Which, again, like you have to be super geeky to see this and realize that that pattern looked a lot like the pattern from Carmenere and not at all like Merlot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Di Martino, the other winemaker I mentioned earlier, was the first winery to bottle a wine here and change the name from Merlot, which everyone was using, to Mm Carmenere. But it's cool wine and people who are making it well, like I think Di Martino makes a fire uh, wine from it, are doing it well. But it's not fair. Like yeah. and I think we do that in a lot of regions, you oh, know, especially sure. in the New World. And we didn't do that to California. We did. We don't do that to Oregon and Washington State. You know, like we let we let the states in our own country plan what they want, you know, and say like, oh, cool, yeah, like of course, Napa is known for Cabernet Sauvignon, but there's also people doing really cool Syrah or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we really do do that when we look out of our country at other places and we say like, how can i put you in a box and if you if you're making you know wines i can get other places i'm not as willing and i'm I'm talking mostly about the industry community here i'm not as willing to try them and i think that's not fair because the the consumer i think would find incredible incredible value and pleasure from a lot of the wines that we know they love like cabernets and pinot noirs
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it's also interesting because, as as I think you're pointing out, and and I would love a chance to to get to experience it more personally, that when you look at places like Chile that have, you know, some commonality with other growing regions in the world, but also have their own unique characteristics, then you really are going to get a different expression of Cabernet Sauvignon or whatever than you would get um, in, you know, California or France or Australia or pick a place. And so to say, you know, with these varieties in particular that we look at as sort of the, the noble varieties, the, the the wines that are consumed in great quantities globally and that are in high demand, it's nice to have a range of styles and that, you know, uh, Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon could be, you know, for someone who wants to try, ca- wants to stick with their beloved Cabernet Sauvignon but wants to try something different, like, that is a great opportunity. And if we sort of say, oh, no, the only thing we're going to carry from Chile is, yeah, Carmenere or whatever, or we're only going to carry very inexpensive Cabernet Sauvignon because, you know, that's part of this story too. And and I agree we should probably 100%. save this for another episode. But but there is something about, you know, a lot of New World regions, especially Southern Hemisphere regions, you know, entered the American market on the very low end price wise and have now sort of had issues getting themselves into a higher price bracket even if the quality of wine 100% merits it um, and I'm sure that's something you're talking to producers about there because I'm sure they want your input um, on how to do that and uh, again maybe topic for another episode but I have one last question about sort of what you're with the experience you're having in Chile and and with the wine there and that is you know, you were talking a little bit about how um, some of the producers are looking at having, you know, they're sort of saying, you're you're trying their icon wines, and they're saying, oh, you know, this is our sort of price in the U.S. Are are most of these wineries that you're visiting available widely throughout the U.S., or are you, or are, are most of are the, obviously the big producers, whom we all know, are widely available throughout the U.S., but are, are you finding that, that most of these places are only, you know, sort of sporadically available in the United States? Because as I said, I have a hard time, I mean, I haven't looked super extensively, but I don't, I don't get brought Chilean wine to taste very often. I don't come across it all that often. That could be a fault of me and the community here and not Chile. But I'm wondering if – are these wines reaching the American market in um, you know a wider distribution or is it really either not making it to the U.S. or only to a few markets?
0: So I think they're trying to be available in more markets and for the most part, the wineries that I – visited are. So, um, you know, Vic, for example, they were so that's also like one of the reasons I was so excited to come down here is we we named Vic our number three wine of the year last year. I remember talking about it. That wine's amazing. And you know, so I was really curious to see like what else other people were doing here. So I'm like, there's they can't be the only ones, right? Like they can't be the only ones making amazing wine and they're not. Um, They're making really, really special stuff. But there's a lot of other people who are who are also making really great things. And They're trying. Um, I think that they do have that bias. Um, It's really hard. Like, every every producer I talked to yesterday at this conference has said, like, the U.S. is the hardest market for us in the world. Mm. And I think that that's probably something that would be said for lots of different countries, right? I think almost any country, you name it, besides probably France, Italy, and Spain – And probably, no, you know, maybe just France and Italy would say like the U.S. is one of is the hardest market for us in the world Hmm. Um, because we're really difficult. We have this three tier system. Yeah. And then the sort of reputation you're talking about is something that every country has to deal with, which is, you know, especially in New World, we came in with cheaper stuff and now we need to go premium. I mean, you see Australia, for example, really spending lots of money on marketing in the United States in order to try to fix the yellowtail problem. Yeah. Um, And those are things that are just realities. And so I think what they've seen as being really, uh, have the largest potential is going towards the consumer and getting with some sort of retailer in which you can buy their wine online. Gotcha. Right. So, um, so some of these producers, you definitely, I think can find pretty much across the United States. Like I'm pretty sure you could find DiMartino, um, there with, uh, you know, um, Broadbent. and Broadbent's a really uh, great importer. And I think, uh, it, it's pretty. I don't know if you have broadbent in your market. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So like, I'm, you could find them, yeah. right? Um, and then like another pretty good, sizable importer with some of these wines, like Vine Connections. Um, and there's a lot of producers I've met with who are with them, and they're really trying very hard to be in a ton of different markets. Um, but yeah, for some of these producers, it's really difficult. And so they're they're trying to at least play a little bit to the technology of what's happening in the U.S. and and try to get with some of these e-commerce providers and sell their wines that way, like whether that's wine.com or a I don't know wine library just a random wine store in the U.S. that's willing to to ship to f- the forty plus states they think they can. Um, but it's really hard, man. Like, I, that's what makes it difficult because there's some of these wines that I would love, like every single person that listens to this, po- this podcast to be able to drink, and you know like the wines that we had at Maditich were amazing and i know that they're also really pushing to be in tons of different markets but it's you know th- this is like a crazy biodynamic farm that's like one of the coolest vineyards i've ever been to in my life and you know it's just it's difficult and yeah. the competition on the US market is massive and so i think what they're trying to do and what i think a lot of wineries from these other new world places are trying to do which I've seen over the course of this summer, because I think this summer I spent way too long traveling around the world, going to these kinds of conferences and visits and stuff like that, is a lot of them are saying, you know, we're going to stop focusing on these really big markets of New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, et cetera, and really go to these secondary places. Mm-hmm. Because those are the places where there's not as much competition on the market. They can enter and their the, the quality of their wines will shine you know, in in a in a very different way than it would in these markets where, like, we just get so much great wine from so many different places that it's really hard to take the time to 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 give it a second look.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's uh, it's I, I'll be excited to see if uh, if they do have some success in sort of finding a more uh you know broad footing in the American market because I. I like I said, I've heard from a lot of people, yourself included, who've been there that that it's there's amazing wine down in Chile, and I like to drink amazing wine.
0: One hundred percent, one hundred percent. So I mean, it's it's been a, it's been a crazy time, man. It's uh it's been really cool to to be down here and really see what uh what everybody is doing and and how they're really expressing, uh you know, this incredible country through the wines they make, and uh you know I'm excited to get back to New York and and have more people drink Chilean wine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Plus, you got to miss some, you know, gross hot weather. So that's always nice.
0: Yep. So uh, I will, uh, of course, as always, talk to you next week. And thank everyone else for listening. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at podcast.vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patrie, and the show is produced by Zach Duval and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vine Pair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.